Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Heights Church. We meet weekly at 9 and 1045 a.m. and 5 p.m. For more information, visit SalemHeightsChurch.org. This morning we're going to be talking about the topic of fail-safe. And what does that mean? Uh, the word fail is a common word in our vocabulary. We use failing a lot. Uh, we talk about that. We try to prevent it as much as possible. Uh, we use the word safe a lot because safety is important, security, making sure that things are taken care of and nothing that catches us off guard. But what does it mean, this term, fail safe? Uh, as I began to, to, when Pastor Matt shared, this was the theme for men's retreat, and I started thinking about even preaching this morning on the topic, uh, I wanted to do a little further investigation myself on what does the word fail-safe mean. Uh, the dictionary defines fail-safe as incorporating some feature for automatically counteracting the effect of the anticipated possible source of failure. Uh, if you're like me, that didn't really help answer the question a whole lot, like what does fail-safe mean? Here's what it means in, in Pete terms, so layman terms, really simple. It means something that's put in place so that when something fails, it prevents catastrophic loss. The damage is something beyond repair, the brokenness that could not be restored. It's something that's put in place to prevent there from being a bigger problem. And in fact, there's lots of things that we don't even know have fail-safes built into them, but when they are actually engaged, when something happens and, we, and they spring into action, we're really glad that they're there. Uh, we have an elevator here at the church, and, and elevators, are, they use cables to lift the elevator box up between floors. And if for some reason, one of those cables were to, to break or not be able to hold the weight of the elevator, there are mechanisms in there, brakes, that will freeze the, the elevator so that it doesn't fall to the bottom floor. Hopefully, we'll never have to experience that fail-safe mechanism, but it's there, and I'm sure I'd be glad if that was the case. Or perhaps maybe you've been uh, to an intersection after a storm, and you'll see all the lights at an intersection are flashing red. Have that, has that ever happened to you? Good, I'm just checking your responsiveness this morning. Uh, that is a fail-safe system put in there so that if there's a power outage or whatever controls the lights to regulate traffic at an intersection. If it goes down, those lights automatically spring into this flashing red so that everyone comes to that intersection with caution, evaluates the scene, and then proceeds safely. And we're glad for that because if there were no lights, if you've ever been in a place where like, the lights are completely down, uh, it, some people, it, it could be very dangerous. Even a savings account can be a, a form of fail-safe where you start to kind of put away money each month. Uh, you start to create your budget and put it away. And it's not that you couldn't spend that money on stuff, but you don't need to spend it on stuff. And so you put it aside so that in the unexpected or unforeseen emergency, if something happens and you need resources, they're set aside for you. You have that in place so that you're not caught off guard. Here's the thing about a fail-safe. A fail-safe is something that is purposefully and thoughtfully installed prior to the emergency. So how does that relate to our relationship with God? Why would this be a topic that's important for us to consider? Well, what I'm hoping to do this morning through a number of passages, we're going to be in a number of different passages this morning in the Word of God, I want us to helpfully answer the question, can God be trusted at all times? Now, you might say if you're a Christian, you've been attending church for a long time, well, yes, thank you. Uh, that's not groundbreaking. 
But I want to show us in Scripture why God can be trusted. But the second question that's more personal for you to answer this morning is this. What are the fail-safe systems in your life that protect you spiritually? Why would that even be necessary? In Ephesians, it tells us a warning. All the people who have believed in Christ, who have a relationship with God, there's a warning given to Christians in Ephesians. And it says this, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, because the days are evil. Be careful. In the translation that I learned that verse as a little kid, it said, walk circumspectly. Like, what does that mean? It just means that you don't take a step until you really evaluate where you're stepping. It's like walking into a room with, that's covered with Legos and the lights are out. It's like you have to be careful where you're walking. Each step is planned to where you're going. But why is it warning us? Why is it calling us as Christians, as followers of Jesus, to walk carefully? It's because the days are evil. There are things out there, realities, both seen and unseen, that could take you far from God, that can take you outside of his plan, that can cause you to feel burdened and shameful and guilty and broken, that will not lead you to restoration or hope. It'll just lead you further and further down, seeking after your own desires, after your own abilities to take care of your problem. And so we need to have fail-safes in our life. And God has said, I'm your fail-safe. My word is what will protect you. My word is what will, will guide you. And so we're going to look at this morning. And so we're going we're to look at many different passages, but I wanted to start this morning going back to Genesis chapter 2. Uh, typically, we stand as we read. We're going to stay seated this morning because we're going to be hopping around a lot of places. But I want to take us back to the introduction of doubt. The introduction of doubt. Genesis chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 4. If you're ready, say ready. ready. This is the word of the Lord. This is the account of the heavens and earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and heaven, now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth. But there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man out of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Jump down to verse 15. Then the Lord God took man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may free, eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave the names to all the cattle and to all the birds of the sky and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. 
So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And when he took one of his ribs, he closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib that he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now we're going to read just verse 1 of chapter 3 because there's a contrast, there's a change then that takes place. Look what it says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Let's pray. God, I just pray in the next few moments you would help us consider the importance of trusting you, of having a fail-safe in our life of your word, God, and that we would consider the things that cause doubt in our lives and be able to see clearly from your scriptures why uh, that is something we need to be careful about, God. I pray that you'd speak clearly through your word, that you'd speak to our hearts. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. There was a word used all the way through that section of chapter two, a phrase. I don't know if you caught it. It's 12 times. Did you see it? It was Lord God. Lord God. Those are significant names. The word Lord in the Hebrew language of the Old Testament uh, is Yahweh. And it speaks to the one who has absolute power, complete authority, uh, the one who is above all things, the one who gets to set the rules, the one who gets to say what is. That's our God. That's the God who created everything. He is Lord. But it also says Lord God. And that second word there is another name for God. In the Hebrew, it's Elohim. And it, it has the idea of the one who has power. It speaks to his ability to be creator. That God is the one who had the power to create all that is from nothing. It says in the Bible that he spoke and things came into existence. And so throughout this account, and it says in verse 4 of chapter 2, this is the account of the heavens and the earth. Moses, who is the author of Genesis, is uh, being guided by God's Spirit to write down for us, mankind, uh, a, a historical account of how everything came to be. And as he's writing it down, he continues to reference the Creator as Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God. And then in chapter 3, we see another character introduced. It says that he's disguised in this, this form of a, a crafty beast or a serpent. And it calls him crafty, or some of your Bibles say cunning. It means tricky. He, he is known for his deception. And he enters into the scene, and he goes to the woman, Eve, and he asks a question. Has God said that you shouldn't eat of any of the trees? Did you see what the devil did there? Because what he did there, he's continuing to do today as he begins to introduce doubt. He took the Lord out. He, he removed God's authority from the scene. Moses carefully said, the Lord God, the Lord God, the one that has authority, who has absolute power, the one who created all things, 
is the one who did all this. And then Satan comes and he begins to introduce this idea. Does God really have authority over you? Is God really the one that has all the power to say what is? Is he really the one that gets to set the standard? Does he get to make the rules of what's okay and what's off limits? Sure, he, he's God. He's a, you know, he has power, but is he really in charge? You know, the Bible tells us, even as you start from Genesis and you work all the way through all the books, that even in the New Testament, uh, it tells us that Satan is, hasn't really gotten more creative. He's just really committed to his cause. That he continues to try to throw these little darts the Bible calls it spiritual warfare. He tries to deceive us. He tries to place these little doubts in our minds that get us to question God's promises. Can we take God at his word? In John chapter 8, it, it calls the devil a liar. That means what he says is not true. He says he's the father of lies. That means that you can't trust anything he says. A few chapters later in John, it tells us that his prerogative, his purpose, what he has set his will to do is to steal and to kill and to destroy. He is committed to doing everything opposed to God. And so when he comes in here in the scene of Genesis chapter 3, and he, and he cozies up to Eve and he starts to have a conversation with her, he is not thinking of her best interests. He doesn't care about Eve. He's not trying to enlighten Eve to this whole life that God is holding back from him, that he's holding out on. No, his goal is to steal and to kill and destroy. And how does he do it? By subtly throwing in these little ideas that God cannot be trusted, that God doesn't have the authority. Who made him the one that says you can and can't do something? So how does doubt then creep in? I think there's four ways that we experience doubt, even as believers, because I would, I would believe that this is true for me, and I'm guessing it's true for a few of you in the room this morning, that even if you have faith in Jesus, if you believe in him for your salvation, if you trust the Bible, that you are still prone to seasons of doubt, seasons where you start to question God, his goodness, his plan, what he's doing. Uh, there are four, four reasons that kind of popped into my mind how doubt can even be something that we struggle with, but they're all very real. Uh, one of the ways is through unexpected hardship. Unexpected hardship. Something that you go through. It could be a physical illness. It could be a, a loss of a job. It could be an unexpected kind of rift in a relationship. And you find yourself asking the question, why is this happening? Why would God let this happen? I look at everything that should be happening and it's not going as I think it should. What's God doing? We start to doubt his authority and his plan with unexpected hardships. Another way that doubt creeps in for some is through unsatisfied desires. Unsatisfied desires. I don't have enough of fill in the blank. It's different for all of us. I don't have the thing that I need to be satisfied. Why would God keep that from me? Why, why have I not been able to secure it for myself? Why does it always go wrong? Where are all the good ones? Unsatisfied desires can lead us to doubt God. But also unknown timelines. 
unknown timelines can cause us to doubt God. We, we, we get in a situation, we get in a hardship, maybe we visit the doctor and we get a prognosis and they're like, we really don't, here's, here's what's going on and here's the plan, but we don't know how long this is gonna take. Or possibly we find ourselves in situations where we don't, we don't know how long we're gonna have to endure it. There's no, there's no light at the end of the time. We pray and ask God for wisdom and he just telling us to wait. Or at least we think he's telling us to wait because maybe we feel like he hasn't answered that cry for help, that cry for direction, that, that cry for resolution. And so that unknown timeline, it causes us to go, how long is this gonna go on for, God? What's, what's taking you so long? And if you think that's unique to, to you and I, it's not. I mean, read the Psalms. We're going to spend some time in the Psalms this morning. They're, it's all through the Psalms. How long, O oh Lord? There's another way that I think doubt can creep into our lives. It's unseen resolution. When we get into those situations and we don't see a way out. And unseen resolutions, I, for me, when I was thinking of this, kind of goes into the, the times in life when I've actually, I know that I caused the problem. I sabotaged myself. I made the sinful choice. I chose to do the thing that I know I shouldn't have done. I went back to the thing that's constantly been the thing that has dragged me down and kept me burdened. And so then I'm like, I don't see how God would, could fix this. I don't see why he would fix this. He doesn't, I don't deserve to be fixed. I, I don't have any value anymore. These are just a few ways that I think we can start to struggle with. Do we truly trust God's promises? What are those circumstances in our life that come up sometimes out of nowhere that cause us to doubt these awesome and amazing promises we see in Scripture? I think for, for you this morning, my question is, which one of these areas, which one of these ways is more prone for you? You might say, well, I'm okay, you know, unexpected hardships, I, I've learned, and so that doesn't catch me off guard, and, you know, I, I'm finding my satisfaction in Jesus, but, man, when it's, like, taking a long time, I, I struggle with being patient and waiting, that's the one for me. Maybe that's you. Which one of these is for you? Because I think we all struggle at least one of these ways. These are the things that are constantly, these are the things that are going to trip us up. These are going to be the things that cause us to not walk wise in evil days. Because when we experience that hardship, we experience that setback, when we experience that thing that is challenging our trust in God, where it doesn't even leave it to openness. It's like you have to make a decision. Are you going to stay with God or are you going to take care of this yourself? What are going to be those things that cause those triggers in your life? We need to know it. Because just like all the fail-safe measures that have been put in place for different things, whether it be an elevator, whether it be some stoplights, um, you have to think through what are the possible things that can trip you up and then you think about what do we put in our life to protect us if those things come. Satan is real. He continues to this day to be a liar and a thief, someone looking to destroy you, kill you. He doesn't want what's good for you. And he's continuing to try to cast doubt on God's authority and his power in your life. So how do we counteract that? How can we build some fail-safes in us? Because when those doubts come, what we're going to hear from our enemy is, see, God doesn't love you. Why would God let, if God loves you, why would he let you experience that hardship? If God was truly trustworthy, why is he letting you just kind of flounder around? Why isn't he giving you answers? Why isn't he made a way? And so there are plenty of promises that we can go to in the Bible. But what is going to cause us to believe in those promises? 
rather than the lies of the devil. I want to give us five truths this morning. We're going to be in three different texts of Scripture. And so would you turn with me uh, to Numbers, the book of Numbers here in the Old Testament. So head to the right in your Bibles to Numbers 23. And I want to give us five truths to remember when I am tempted to doubt God's promises, when I'm tempted to, to think, is God truly dependable? Let me set up kind of Numbers 23 because we're just going to look at this one verse. But in Numbers 23, there's a man named Balaam, and he is kind of hired by a guy named Balak to, to curse Israel because Balak doesn't like how God is helping Israel. He's scared of Israel conquering him, and so he hires Balaam to, to speak a word over these, the Israelites and to curse them. And so Balaam doesn't want to do this. He goes and does it, and, uh, but he says to Balak, he says, I will go and pray, and whatever the Lord tells me to say over Israel, I'm going to say and so he comes back the first time and he gives the word from the Lord. And instead of cursing Israel, he blesses them. Balak's like, what is going on? That's not what I hired you for. So let's go over here. Try again. And in, in chapter 23, verse 10, we, we're, we're reading a verse, a statement that is made that, that he's using in the second word that God had given him. But I think it's really important for us. It says in Numbers 23, verse 19, excuse me, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? The first thing that we need to remember when we are tempted to doubt God's promises is that God does not lie. God does not lie. Uh, Charles Ryrie, theologian, uh, he, in his uh, book called Basic Theology, and he's describing all these qualities, these characteristics of God. Um, many times uh, theologians will call those attributes. I love what Ryrie, he calls them perfections because when God demonstrates that quality, he does it in its purest, perfect form. So when it says that God doesn't lie, that's not a matter of just speaking to his, you know, his morality, his ethics, his just determination to just be a truth teller. That means he does not possess the ability to lie. He is truth. Jesus affirms this for us in John 14 when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. God is truth. He doesn't tell a lie. So when God says something in the scriptures and he says, I will never leave you or forsake you, you have a sympathetic high priest, one who understands what you're going through. When he says, I have saved you and you are my workmanship and I've created good works for you to do. Just, those are just, there's so many promises of scripture. When God says that, he is not lying. You can take that to the bank. That's what we need to remember when we're experiencing the doubt that God doesn't lie. He says that God is not a man that he should lie. He doesn't possess that ability. He's not human like us and has a sin nature and he could lie if he's not careful. No, he, he's not a man. He does not lie. We need to remember that when we're tempted to doubt God's promises. But there's a second one and that is God doesn't change his mind. God doesn't change his mind. In the New American, what I'm preaching out of this morning, it says, nor a son of man that he should repent. That word repent just means change or change his ways. What, what Balaam is telling to Balak, he's saying, God is not human. He, he doesn't have to, he's not going to change. He's not going to go back and forth. When God says, this is my plan, this is the plan. This is what I've determined. 
And I'm not going to just take it away from you. It's not like, well, I made that promise to you like 10 years ago and you didn't take me up on it, so I'm revoking it. No, he, 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 what he says he's going to do. And that's what we see here. He uses rhetoric, this idea where he asks a question with an obvious answer. Has he said, has God said something and will he not do it? Yes, he's going to do it. If he says it, he will do it. Has he spoken and not make, made it good? Has he said something that he was going to do and not come through? The obvious answer here that he's speaking and he's describing God, he's saying God is a God, and this is point three, who always does what he says he will do. He always does what he says he will do. He doesn't lie. He doesn't change his mind. And he always does what he says he will do. But sometimes, again, we're, we're the, the question, the reason that doubt is created is because we still don't understand why he's allowing it to do it. Why would, why would a good God who loves me and doesn't lie and won't change his mind and always comes through on his promises, why then is this, why is there hardship? Why is there struggle? One of the things that I was reading on fail sale, I just started kind of looking at some articles and just wanting to kind of understand this concept. And one of the things one author said was this, I thought it was really helpful. It said that, Here's one of the things you have to realize about fail-safes. Fail-safes do not prevent something breaking down. They're put in place to help mitigate the outcome, meaning it, it doesn't stop the elevator from possibly having a, a, a faulty cable that breaks, but it prevents that from being something that's catastrophic. See, God has fail-safe. He said, my word is a fail-safe. You can believe it because I do not lie, I do not change my mind, and I will always do what I say I'm going to do. But he does, that does not mean that if you have that and you have those promises and you hold those promises that there's not going to be certain things in your life that again you're sinful you might stumble and fall or something that he allows you to go through because he has a perfect plan i want to show you a few verses that speak to this would you turn to psalm psalm 18 now psalm 18 is written by david before he's king he's being chased by the king at the time king saul who's hunting david david he wants david killed he doesn't like the fact that god has anointed david to be the next king and so david is running from saul and think about this david knows god has already said you're going to be the next king david so david has favor in god's eyes he's been selected by god david has actually had opportunities where he could have taken saul out where Saul's hunting him and David could have came and he could have killed him and moved him out. And he's like, I could, God, here, I'm just gonna take care of this. Let's get Saul out of the way, God. You've already made your decision. I'll take care of this and I'll, I'll just step into the role you've already anointed me for. But David doesn't do that. He doesn't take matters into his own hands. But he writes Psalm 18 as, as Saul is chasing him. And so this is not coming from a guy who's living in like total comfort. Everything in his life is going really good. But look what he says in verse 30. Psalm 18, verse 30. As for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. In some of your translations, it says God's way is perfect. Was he experiencing some hardship? Yes. Was he being falsely, like, you know, like wrongly pursued? And like, like, should he even be having to worry about his life being in danger? No. He, Saul's motivation wasn't because David was justly due getting arrested or punished. 
But David reflects to us a truth about God. He communicates it through the inspiration, writing this out. God's ways are perfect. Even when we don't see the why, even when we don't see the how long question answer, God's ways are perfect. His word is what? Pure. It says in the New American here, it's tried. It means it's been tested and it's been found to be pure. It's been found to be true. It's found to be flawless. And so because of that, all who turn to him, all who go to God and say, God, I don't know what's going on, but I'm gonna trust in you. All those who turn to God, it says he will be their shield. The Lord God, the one with all the authority and all the power who's actually able to guard you from anything you're facing. His way is perfect. I think we have to remember this when we're getting challenged about God's word because sometimes it's gonna be in the valley where we need to keep our eyes focused on God, trusting that he is with me. He hasn't left me. There's one more truth I think we need to remember and I wanna, I wanna show you it in scripture first. Turn with me to over a few pages to Psalm 37. And this was one of kind of the key verses for this weekend up at Men's Retreat, uh, selected by Pastor Matt. And this is written now by King David towards the end of his life. So now David has the wealth of experience that comes from just living life. And King David, we know, was not a perfect man. In fact, he made some really big mistakes in his life. And yet God chose to forgive and restore and to use David and this is what it says in Psalm 37, starting in verse 23. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. Listen to verse 25. I have been young, and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, or his descendants begging bread. All day long he is gracious and lends and his descendants are a blessing. The last truth I think we need to remember when we are being tested to trust God's promises and doubt is trying to creep in is this, that God's children are never neglected. It says here that the steps of a man who follows God, who puts their trust in the Lord, are established. That word means made firm. They're ordered. They're directed. They're determined by God. Those who follow in God, who trust in God, he directs their step. He establishes their steps, and they are a delight. It doesn't mean that the path is always nice, but they know that they're delightful. They have, they have this peace. They are, they are happy is one way that some of the translators have, have translated that word. Because why? Because their trust is not in themselves. It's in God. He's the one that's established this, and I can trust him. But look what else it says is that we're not alone on life. When we follow God, we walk in step with Yahweh. We're not on our own. We follow a trail that he has blazed, and we walk after him. And it says here that if we fall... It says we will not be cast headlong. That just means we will not be on the ground and just de de defeated, left there lying there on the ground, and then he walks away. It says, no, he will hold them and he will pick them up. That God is always there, even in the struggle. You will not be left on your own, left lying there to figure out a way to get up, left there broken, because the Lord, Yahweh, is the one who holds your hand. And then verse 25 
He says, I, I have been young and now I'm old. I look back at my life and not one time could I ever say that God has ever forsaken his children. That word forsaken means abandoned, left behind. God has not one time left his children wanting, begging for bread, left on their own, no resources, no, all day long he is gracious and lends. That's God. What an important truth to remember when doubt is trying to creep in, right? When it's unforeseen, you don't know how long it's going to be, you don't know why it's happening. He hasn't left you. He's right there. He's not going to neglect you. So as we wrap up this morning, what's your fail safe? What is it in your life that when hardship, trial, struggle comes up, when you're faced with realities, what is it that you, what, what springs into action to try to comfort you, to direct you, to help you, to protect you? What is it? I believe that all of us this morning need to consider God's word and understand that it is God's word that will protect us in those moments when we, we kind of come to that fork in the road and we either have to trust God or we're going to trust in ourselves, I believe it's in those moments when we need God's word. We need, we need a treasury of God's word in our heart. We need a toolbox. We need a, a bucket that's full and we begin to pour it out on the problem. Psalm 119, verse 11 says this, I have treasured your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. How does treasuring God's word in our heart prevent us from, in those moments of doubt, sinning against God, turning to our own ways, turning to some other solution rather than trusting in him and his promises? How does treasuring up that word help? It's, it's because it's God's word that gives us wisdom. It's God's word that gives us comfort. It's God's word that it says will rebuke us and say, you've stepped out of bounds here, which is sometimes what we need to hear. It's God's word that will actually, it tells us in 2 Timothy 3, that will correct us. That God doesn't just rebuke and wave his finger. You've stepped out of line. He says, and let me show you, though, how you can fix this. God's word gives us the plan. So the psalmist is saying, I have treasured your word. I, I'm putting this into me because when, when life comes at me and I'm not prepared, that failsafe, the thing that I want to engage, the thing that I want to spring to action without me even saying anything is I want God's word to speak to all the lies that the devil is throwing at me, that my flesh is throwing at me, that this world is throwing at me, all the lies that I'm facing that are trying to cause me to doubt God's authority and his power in my life. Is that your failsafe? Is that what you've been looking to? Is that what you're banking on for a rainy day, God's word? Because God's word can be trusted. Why? Because God doesn't lie. He doesn't change his mind. And he always does what he says he's going to do. I like to finish this morning um, by giving you a, a great passage that could be something that maybe even in 2020, it's a familiar passage, but it's a passage that maybe you could start looking at and remembering, perhaps even memorize for yourself this week. And so I, I want to wrap up our time by just asking you to close your eyes. And I want to read this psalm to you. I just want to read it over you because God's word is living and active and it has the ability to change hearts and to encourage hearts. But as you close your eyes this morning, as we wrap up our sermon time, God, 
God, I believe, wants us to kind of just consider this famous psalm this morning, Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is full of promises for you. And I would just love, as I read this out to you, many of you maybe already know it by heart, but as I read this out to you, I want you to ask yourself the question, do I trust in this God? It says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside, beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies and have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Those promises are fail-safe. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to be reminded one more time that you are worthy to be trusted, God, and that our enemy hasn't changed his strategy. Since the beginning, he's been trying to cast doubt to get us to question your authority, your plan as creator. But God, you have made a way for us to see truth. You've made a way for us to have a response to that, God. And so I pray that you would help us treasure your word in our heart in a way that we will have those promises be the things that come to mind when we are tempted to doubt. God, thank you for your faithful promises. We love you, and we pray this in your son's name. Amen.